Today we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and only verse 15. But I'm going to read verses 14 through 22 just to keep before you the context in which uh, verse 15 appears. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting at verse 14. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Let's pray. Father God, speak to us. Something that you have said in more than just this one place. Speak to us through this word, through your word. May it be not only living and empowered by you as it goes into our ears, but that it would touch our hearts, our minds as well. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to begin by acknowledging that it's possible that the wording of the five exhortations in verses 15 through 18 can seem somewhat extreme or unrealistic. For example, these five exhortations say this, See that no one, no one repays evil for evil. The next one is always. It starts with always. That means there's never a time that it shouldn't be true. Always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Not just your brothers and sisters in Christ, but even the people in the world. The next one is rejoice always. Rejoice always, really? But rejoice always. And then pray without ceasing. And the last one is in everything. In everything give thanks. Well, because the wording seems extreme or unrealistic, some may treat these exhortations as if they are impractical and therefore not to be taken too seriously. However, it is my opinion that the wording only seems extreme to those who are, first of all, uncertain about God's trustworthiness. Because if he's trustworthy and he says this, he puts this in his book to us, then it can't be extreme, it can't be unrealistic. So if we really believe that God is trustworthy, then these words won't seem. But they will seem extreme if we aren't certain that God is trustworthy. And they'll seem extreme to those who aren't convinced that God enables, empowers, and helps us to live the life he calls us to live. If he wrote this, then certainly 
He will enable and help us and empower us to live this way. But if you don't believe that, if you don't trust in that, then surely these words will seem extreme or unrealistic to you. And if you haven't learned to think, to think about life, to think about God, to interpret your events in life, and to think about God's words the way he thinks about it, thinks about life, then they will also seem extreme and unrealistic. I'm bringing this up today, and I won't, I'm not intending to do this over the next several weeks, but I'm bringing this up today because as we work through these five exhortations in the weeks ahead, beginning with the first one today, that as we do this, I want to urge you to see them as what can be. To actually believe that they can be this way in your life. And to believe that by trusting in God and his enabling and transforming power, that he himself will enable and empower you to live accordingly. All right, jumping to verse 15 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Let me read it one more time. See that no one repays another evil for evil. But always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. The first thing that I want you to notice is that this is a two-sided exhortation. The first side tells us what not to do. The second side tells us what to do instead. So let's begin with the first side. See that no one repays another with evil for evil. Of the five exhortations, this is the only one that exhorts the whole church, all of us, to take on the responsibility of seeing that no individual in the church, or that we as a church, repays evil for evil. This is the only one that gets this universal exhortation as well as the individual exhortation. And, of course, this in no way removes the responsibility that each of us has to not repay evil for evil to anyone. We each individually still have that responsibility. But what this statement does is it calls us as a church, as a community of believers, as a family, to share this responsibility by working together, by helping each other, so that none of us does repay evil for evil. All right, you may be wondering why God has gone beyond making this an individual responsibility to making this both an individual and a community responsibility. So from my perspective, there are at least three reasons why God did this, and I want to talk through these three reasons because I think they're important for us to understand the exhortation, and the problem that this exhortation is dealing with. The first reason that I think God makes this both an individual and a community-wide responsibility is that repaying evil for evil is a sin almost all of us. And I'm saying almost all of us, though I believe every one of us, but I want to be kind to you all. Almost all of us are prone to commit 
Repaying evil for evil is a sin almost all of us are prone to commit. And I'd like you to at least accept the premise. You can throw it out when I'm all done, and you can say I totally disagree with that, but if you're going to understand what we're going to talk about for the next few minutes, accept the premise that you are prone to commit this. Not once, but repeatedly. And not only openly and in blatantly unchristian ways, but also in less obvious and more socially acceptable ways. The fact is that this is a sin many of us don't even realize we are committing. Not because we can't know, but because we do not purposely and honestly examine our behavior in order to see if, how, and how often we commit this sin. We kind of go through life just oblivious to the idea of repaying evil for evil. Again, the fact is that if you think about repaying evil for evil at all, it's probable you think about it on a grand scale. And I'm going to give an example of a grand scale because it just, Happened. It was just in the news in the past weeks. And the grand scale that I'm going to give you the example is the destruction of property and the loss of life that the Israelis and Hamas have inflicted on each other when they were at war with each other just several weeks back. They were returning evil for evil. And by the way, the first strike, which Hamas was guilty of, was not just a blatant first strike. They were striking back in repayment for the way they've been treated by the Israelis for many years. It was a first strike that was repaying evil for evil. So that's the grand scale. I don't know if you saw the pictures or if you uh, read anything about it, but buildings were destroyed. People died, children, uh, mothers, daughters, people who had nothing to do with fighting. This is the grand scale of repaying evil for evil. And yet, as we know from Jesus' teaching about adultery in Matthew 5, 27 and 28, you may be wondering, why am I bringing this up? Well, what Jesus did in this particular teaching, not, a, not that it's the only one, but it's the one that is so clear, you can't miss it. What he made known is that sin is not always big and obvious. Adultery is not always big and obvious. And he made that clear by saying, if you look at a woman, the lust after her, and nobody knows what you're doing, they don't know what your eyes are looking at necessarily. They don't know what you're thinking. But it's still sin. You see, sometimes sin is small and hidden from public view. And this can also be true of repaying evil for evil. It isn't always on the grand scale of Israel and Hamas. The second reason God makes this both an individual and a church responsibility is because when Christians commit it, 
They are misrepresenting God himself and the Christian way of life. It is a clear, obvious, maybe not to you, but to God and the word of God and serious-minded Christians, returning evil for evil is a clear and obvious misrepresentation of God and the Christian way of life. For example, repaying evil for evil is contrary to God's nature. It is opposite of the way God deals with us. It is contrary to godly living. It's opposed to love. In fact, the most common motive for repaying evil for evil is the selfish form of self-protection. Therefore, it is impossible, it is impossible for Christians to repay evil for evil to anyone without bringing shame and dishonor to the name of God and making Christianity look bad. Now, you may do this in your home and nobody knows about it but you and your spouse or you and your kids. So you're thinking that this doesn't apply, but you carry that attitude, you carry that mindset with you wherever you go. And as is my belief, who we are inside bleeds out sooner or later. I also want to say that it's impossible for Christians to love their neighbor as themselves and repay evil for evil. Why is that? Because no one, Absolutely no one repays evil for evil in an effort to seek their neighbor's good. It's to do them harm. The purpose is to do harm. The third reason God makes this an individual and a community responsibility is because this sin cannot make anything better. In fact, it makes things worse by adding sin to sin. It heaps suffering and destruction upon suffering and destruction. It feeds and prolongs hurt feelings, ill will, unkindness, anger, bitterness, hatred, meanness, and even hostility and cruelty toward one another. Do you think the Israelis now love Hamas or the Palestinians? Or do you think that Hamas and the Palestinians have fond feelings towards the Israelis after what they've just gone through? If there was hatred before, it's increased now. If there was ill will, it's increased now. And the same is true in our lives. The reality is to repay evil for evil is to retaliate. It is to strike back with the intention of hurting or harming the person who has wronged you in some way. And though this is often done for the purpose of trying to convince the other person to stop treating you in some unkind or hurtful way. And I agree that many people return evil for evil out of the intention of communicating, stop mistreating me. So it is a form of communication. It's an effort to send a message to the other person. I agree with that. However, it is communicated with words and actions that are just as sinful 
just as hurtful and just as harmful as the wrong done to you. For example, when when we are hurt or disappointed or unfairly criticized or in some other way made to feel unloved or disrespected, we are prone to punish the one who treated us this way by withholding affection, pulling away, putting distance between us, giving the silent treatment, withholding basic kindnesses, using sarcasm, speaking harshly, holding on to resentment and bitterness and letting that out in some kind of anger in the future. These are examples of returning evil for evil. These kinds of responses, though not as obvious or as physically painful as a punch for a punch or a kick for a kick, still damage relationships. They're still sinful. Why? Because they are never done as an act of love or an act of seeking the other's good, but as an act of retaliation with the hope that by hurting those who hurt you, they will stop hurting you. We are Christians. We are followers of Jesus Christ. We have been born again. And we have been loved and saved by a loving, gracious God who has not dealt with us according to our sins. But rather, who has done us good. He's done us good. He sent his son to die on our behalf. He's done us good in spite of our sins. Imagine if he bought into this belief about the wisdom of returning evil for evil, repaying evil for evil. We would never have Christ as our sacrifice. Well, if we are grateful that he's done this for us, should we not follow his example and never repay evil for evil? And though we bear this responsibility individually, I just want to remind you again that in verse 15 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, God commissions us, he exhorts us, he appeals to us to bear it as a church with the goal of seeing to it that none of us repays evil for evil. And I gave you three reasons why he did this. We're all prone to do this even if it's in more quiet, socially acceptable ways. It brings dishonor on God. It brings dishonor to the Christian way of life. And it just makes life worse. Before leaving this first side of verse 15, I want to read three more clear statements from the word of God about repaying evil for evil. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 22. Do not say... Don't even think it. Don't let the words come out of your mouth. Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord instead. Well, that's the tough part, isn't it? Wait patiently. Wait for the Lord and he will save you. 
He will protect you. He will work it out for good. He will bring about a good end to the situation. Romans chapter 12, the first half of verse 17. This is as clear as it gets. Never repay evil for evil to anyone. And 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Peter starts out by saying, to sum up, I'm going to sum up all the things I've been saying to you up to this point. To sum up, all of you be harmonious. That means live in peace with one another. Get along together. Be harmonious. Sympathetic. Have sympathy for one another. Try to understand where each person is coming from, what they're dealing with, what they're going through, why they might be misbehaving, mistreating you, saying unkind things. Be sympathetic. Try to understand that. Be brotherly. You know, you put up with a lot of stuff from your brothers. I didn't always put up with it. I would fight back. I I understood the idea of repaying evil for evil in those days and believed in it. But you know, your siblings, you put up with a lot of stuff, right? Be brotherly. Put up with some stuff. Be kind-hearted and humble in spirit. Yeah, the word humility is really important here as well. So if you just look at that, those first statements there, those first words, those are qualities of character that are necessary in order to have the right mindset, the right attitudes, the right values, the right beliefs, in order to not return evil for evil or insult for insult. But... He goes on to write, give a blessing instead. Do you see the contrast there? It's night and day. Rather than returning evil for evil or insult, give a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. All right, what did we deserve? We deserve to die. We deserve to spend eternity in hell apart from God. But we've been called, we've been saved to receive a blessing. Let's bless Other people, we've treated God terribly. I don't know about you, but one of the things I think about is even in this, these moments of my life, how am I treating God? We've treated God terribly, at least I have. But he's blessed me. Do you see that? And the same with you. We were called to receive a blessing, to inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life, if you desire life, if you desire to love and to see good days, you must keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit, regardless of how you are treated. Verse 11, you must turn away from evil and do good. You must seek peace and pursue it regardless of how you are treated. And here's the the truth that makes all of this work. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. Yeah, your neighbor, your spouse, your child, your friend, a parent, a sibling, co-worker, they may be mistreating you. But the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. He's on your side. He's looking out for you. He will take care of you. And his ears attend to the righteous prayers, the prayers of the righteous. 
but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. All right, as I stated earlier, verse 15 is a two-sided verse. And the second side says that we are to always. And I want to emphasize the word always. We are to always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. This is what we're supposed to do instead of repaying evil for evil. Obviously, the words seek after that which is good is the opposite of being treated in unkind, unloving, evil ways. In other words, God is exhorting us to respond to mistreatment, to respond to hurtful treatment, to respond to unfair treatment, to respond to selfish treatment by seeking of the good, the good of the one who is mistreating us. Actually seek that person's good. Now, without question, this kind of response is contrary to our old sinful nature. I know that for myself, just by being honest with myself about myself. And the old sinful nature simply is trying to protect us from mistreatment, needless suffering, hurt feelings, seemingly endless disappointment, ongoing frustration, painful rejection, unjust criticism, and that horrible feeling of being vulnerable. So that old nature, that sinful nature, it's simply acting in an effort to protect us from what is so unpleasant, so unwanted. However, as Christians, we are supposed to be putting to death our old sinful nature, Galatians 5.24. And as Christians, we are to intentionally and actively put on the new nature, which comes from God and is created in the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 29 and Colossians 3, 9 through 10. So, yes, the old nature, it's trying to do something good, but it's doing it in a sinful, relationship-destructive way. Does that mean you're vulnerable if you don't go with your old sinful nature? No, you have God. But you have to be willing to trust God and wait for God to act. And sometimes it's not even close to being as soon as you would like him to act. So the exhortation to always seek after that which is good, to me is supported by Romans chapter 13, verse 10. Love does no wrong to its neighbor. That's the the negative side of saying it, right? Love always does what is best for the neighbor. It never does what is wrong to a neighbor. And that's in spite of what the neighbor does or has done to you. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the fulfillment of the law. Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 5 verses 43 to 45. He said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be 
sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes. Those three words are really important in this scripture. For he causes. His son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. This is God's perspective, his mindset, his way of dealing with these things. Unless we think no human in his right mind could could live up to this. Let me remind you of Stephen's example in Acts chapter 7, verses 58 to 60. Stephen was being driven out of the city, and as you recall, the Apostle Paul who was named Saul at that time, was part of this. They drove him out of the city and they began to stone him. And as he was dying, Stephen cried out these words with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Imagine being stoned to death. One rock after another hitting your body and you're dying. And he sought their good. How did he seek their good? By saying, God, don't hold this against them. Give them this break. Show them mercy. Let them off from this. Don't pay them back for this. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. I'm not saying that living this way is easy or pain-free. I can assure you from my own life, it's not. And I understand that living this way seems impossible or totally irrational when we view life through the eyes of our old sinful nature. But, when you trust God to be your primary source of security, When you believe you are safe in God's hands, regardless of your circumstances. When God is your first and foremost source of love. So that if those around you don't love you, you're still okay because you have God. When your sense of well-being comes from living a life pleasing to God. When you value love and loving those around you more than you value being loved. And when you look at life through the eyes of your new godly nature, then. Then what seems impossible, what seems irrational, what seems unsafe becomes much easier, wise, and actually totally safe. Returning once again to Paul's words in the second half of verse 15, We read, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. For me, it is is scriptures like Romans 12, 20 to 21 and Romans 13, verse 10. And these words here in verse 15 of 1 Thessalonians 5 that have helped me form my definition for love. And this definition has helped me. I've shared it with you before, but I just want to say it one more time. Love is seeking the good of everyone who is in any way affected by your choices and behavior. Love is seeking the good of everyone who is in any way affected
affected by your choices and behavior. That definition for me just spreads out and covers so many things in my life. And it has caused me to evaluate and reevaluate and rethink many things that I have bought into in years past that were unloving. But I just assumed they were good because they were self-protective. But they were not seeking the good of others. They were just seeking my good, mostly at their expense. So what does it mean to seek someone's good? To seek the good of someone is to do what is best for them and everyone they affect. It's to do what is best for the individual and everyone the individual affects. That is what seeking good is. And you may seek the good of the person in the moment. You may be seeking their good over the long term. And you may be seeking their good in terms of eternity. Maybe all three. But we want to seek a person's good. I think the easiest and most straightforward way to figure out how to seek someone's good is to treat them according to the second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Or in other words, what would you want the other person to do for you or to you if you were in their shoes, if you were in their situation, if you were in their place? How would you want to be treated? Jesus gives a general example of how God does this, and I've already read that in Matthew 5, 45, where Jesus says that God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, obviously, God does not bless and protect and heal the unrighteous like he does the righteous. That's true. He doesn't. But he does them good by making sure that they have what they need to carry on life. They have the sun and the rain. They have all of nature held together and working properly to sustain their life. He makes sure they have what they need to carry on life. And I believe that this establishes a principle that can help us decide how to do good to those who mistreat us. Paul adds some specific examples of doing good in place of repaying evil for evil in Romans 12.20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. It, it's real simple. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. Seek his good by meeting his needs. His wants, not necessarily. No, we're, we're not seeking people's good just by meeting their wants. People want all kinds of things. What is their need? And so we want to seek their good by caring about what it is they need, not just want. Along with these two examples, I personally add this larger list. I think that we should care about people's eternal salvation, their mental and emotional health, their treatment of those nearest and dearest to them. <coughs> Do I care 
Not just about you, but the effect you have on the people in your, in your home, in your larger family, in your workplace. I should. And if I'm going to do you good, I need to do you good in a way that can hopefully spread out and affect the people you touch in good ways. Yes. And I think we should care about people's growth and maturity. Believers are not. Even if they're not believer, we should at least care that they're growing in just good, mature ways. And of course, if they're believers, we should care about their growth in godliness. All right, as I've already stated, God seeks the good of his children in ways that are different from the ways he seeks the good of unbelievers. And that's, again, a principle that we can use in deciding how to do good for those who mistreat us. And I believe we should follow this principle. Because the truth is, our relationship to parents, siblings, spouse, children, and dear friends is different from our relationship with outsiders. One thing that I think people forget, married people, is that there was a day that they stood in front of their friends, probably in a church, and they made a vow. They made a commitment. And they vowed to love the spouse. And of course, when their spouse doesn't treat them just right, they kind of set aside that vow and forget about it and uh, start treating them differently. Well, how do we seek the good of a spouse who isn't loving us as we ought? It's different than how we would seek the good of an outsider. There's no question about that. And we need to think that through, pray that through, look for wisdom and deal accordingly. And I just want to get this point across that seeking the good of those who are nearest and dearest most often requires different kinds of responses than seeking the good of the general public. Just as it does with God and his family. Given the time, I just want to say that there is a lot more that could be said about this particular topic. But I will leave that up to you to think about that, pray about that, and consider it. This isn't just a short phrase. See to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but rather that we seek the good of others. This is a way of life. It is a mindset. It is a set of attitudes. It is a set of beliefs. It is a set of values that should change our lives and change the way we deal with relationships. And there is so much more that could be said about it. But I want to end with just these two truths first. When seeking one another's good, we must consider how doing them good will help or hurt the people they affect. When doing good for one person, one individual, we must consider how doing them good will either help or hurt the people they affect. You see, if doing good for one person harms or deprives others of good, then what we have done is not good. We need to be community-minded. 
And we need to consider the community good when seeking to do good for any individual. And that includes when we're dealing with family, friends, co-workers, unbelievers, and believers. The second truth is this. Seeking someone's good sometimes means saying yes, and sometimes means saying no. You see, seeking the good of others means, as I've already stated, giving what is needed rather than what is wanted. Now, the person may cry foul or be all upset that you're not giving them what they want. Don't let that deter you. Seek their good. Give them what is needed. If what is wanted is what is truly needed, that's fine. Give it to them. But if it isn't, do what is needed. May we as a church and as individuals take this exhortation seriously. May we care, care enough about God and about our neighbor, about the people in our lives to never, as Paul writes in Romans 12, never repay evil for evil to anyone. 